Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We have no choice. We have no choice. Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host Samar Jarrah. My co-host Ahmed and I will be spending the whole hour talking about the Muslim travel ban. It's been five years since uh, Trump initiated this uh, travel ban. Uh, mainly on uh, people coming from Muslim countries. It got revised several times. We're going to be talking to Ruwaida uh, Abdel Aziz about Trump's uh, travel ban and how it changed the lives of Muslims around the world. Listen to Marcel Khalifa. He is Lebanese and he is talking about Jawaz al-Safar, passports. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. <laughs>
welcome back to True Talk. This is your host Samar Jarrah. Ahmed and I are very pleased that we are going to be uh, talking uh, with Ruwaida Abdel Aziz, a very interesting young uh, journalist uh, who uh, covers uh, Islamophobia and immigration. As I started this show uh, with. Um, uh, I started with uh, Trump. I think when he was still uh, not uh, president, uh, he uh, was uh, talking about the Muslim ban, that that's what he's going to do. Let me play it one more time uh, so you listen to it. And then we're going to be uh, bringing uh, Ruwaida to talk about a very interesting feature that she did for the Huffington Post. The title is Trump's travel ban forever changed the lives of Muslims around the world. Because really... Uh, uh, Trump is gone, but does it mean his ban did not affect people? Is it still going on? You may be surprised to know that the consequences of that travel ban is still continuing till this moment. And there are so many petitions out there that people need to sign in order to lift the ban completely. I think Ruwaida will be talking about it uh, in depth. But let me play this segment one more time. This is 2015, uh, December 7, 2000. 2015, and this is Trump talking. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We have no choice. We have no choice. Later on in the uh, on the show, we're going to be playing the uh, real segment when uh, both the Secretary of State and Attorney General spoke elaborately about the travel ban. Good morning, Ahmed. How are you, my co-host? And good morning. Good morning, morning Samar. Good morning to you. This is a very timely uh, topic and glad to have Rawaida Abdelaziz discuss it with us in a little bit. And um, we remember what happened when Trump promised to do a Muslim ban. Uh, ban on all Muslims coming into the United States. Later, uh, one of his first actions in office was to actually pass this executive order um, banning Muslims from coming to the U.S. And, you know, they tried to spin it that it's really a travel ban for national security, but we all knew what it was. Sadly, it's uh, parts of it are still in place. Ahmed, do you remember uh, how you felt when you heard it? Because I couldn't believe my ears that somebody really in a position of power at the time, I know he was not the president, but when he labeled it as a Muslim ban or at least the countries that were involved were all Muslim and then I think they added a few countries that are not Muslim from Africa and then they added some people from Venezuela, like not the whole country, but officials from Venezuela. What was your initial reaction? Did you think that this will happen really if he becomes president? Well, nobody really took it seriously because at the time, except very few people, people like Keith Ellison and perhaps one of the few members of Congress that actually took it seriously and said, you know, this guy may become president. But people did not really react in a way as they should because they never thought that Trump had a chance. But, uh, you know, he later became president and actually followed through on his promise. So when he first said it, people kind of just said, well, that's Trump being racist. Um, not really thinking that it's ever going to come to fruition, but month after month, he kept rising in the polls, eventually taking over his party's 
uh, as a as a prime as the candidate of this party, and then eventually defeating in a shocking way Hillary Clinton, and then you know passing it. And it seems like you know the country was not prepared, and uh, the Democratic Party was not prepared to stop what he was doing. It's the same thing when he said he's going to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. People did not take him seriously, but he was tapping into a segment of society, and he was speaking the language and things. And then they help them, you know. Let me bring uh, Ruwaida in. Good morning, Ruwaida. Always good to have you on True Talk. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me back. Uh, actually, um, it's a very uh, solemn uh, time to be talking about the, the five years of uh, Muslim ban because, to be honest with you, Ruwaida, I didn't even. Remember until I saw your post on uh, Twitter where you said I just I have been working on this piece uh, which is about the what happened like what happened after the media um, moved on and I moved on and we stopped talking about the Muslim travel ban so I'm very happy to have you uh, on the show today let me start by asking you how did you feel like how I asked Ahmed when you heard the candidate Trump at the time announce it? Did you take it seriously? Did you think that one day, five years later or more, I will be interviewing you about it actually affecting people's lives? We were all surprised uh, at the time to hear not just this rhetoric, I think, for many people covering politics and just general Muslim Americans and Muslims across the world. The type of language that we've heard candidate Trump use was not necessarily something new, but the fact that it went unchallenged perhaps was was the most shocking. Um, and so when he was elected, which I think came as a surprise for many, uh, perhaps not those who were directly impacted. Um, and he and and he codified this into law and the chaos that we saw. I think that speaks volumes to the unpreparedness of the country, the unpreparedness of from Democrats, um, and just really highlighted a gap in terms of what a president can and cannot do, and where are the powers that were able to keep him in check or not keep him in check. And that continued to play out not just on the anniversary, not just five years ago today, but also in the lawsuits that we saw happening in the lower courts and in the. Supreme Court. I remember watching uh, the the president sign this into law from my newsroom five years ago today and thinking that this was just the beginning and it was truly just the beginning. And uh, Rwaida, did you keep uh, following the uh, events afterwards? I know you must have written a few features about it. Uh, I remember actually we uh, spoke about a few uh, cases. But what prompted you to write this latest piece? And how long did it take uh, to do it? Because it's quite extensive. It is. I've been following the ins and outs of the travel ban ever since the first iteration was codified into law five years ago today. That meant interviewing families who were impacted following the legislation in Washington, D.C. and the attempts to, to repeal it. All of that really uh, resulted in the culmination of the project that I published this week. And essentially what this piece does is two things. Uh, one, it attempts to quantify the impacts of the ban in the sense that 
there was not a single agency out there that was able to highlight to the American people, to researchers, to experts as to how far this one policy had and how it disproportionately impacted one marginalized group of people. And so I spent the last year documenting cases and I collected nearly 900 cases of stories of people who are still feeling the impacts of Trump's travel ban. Now, we know five years has passed and the ban has been rescinded by President Biden, who is now in office. But the analysis, because it's the first of its kind, really provides us an in-depth glimpse into just not just the physical tolls of the denials in the ban, but the mental and economic tolls as well. And so of these stories, some of the numbers uh, very quickly um, of approximately the 900 cases, almost all of them involved some sort of family separation, including parents being apart from their children, uh, spouses and partners being separated, documented in more than 100 cases, people reported some sort of medical hardship, and about a third of our data Uh, the person impacted faced more than one extreme hardship. So they could have faced family separation and a medical hardship, right? Or they had an economic loss and they were also uh, facing, say, uh, a medical hardship. And so the intersections uh, continue. And to be quite honest, some of the impacts of their ban is simply not quantifiable. We're talking about people who suffered losses. They lost a loved one. They continue to grieve. And so I think it's incredibly important with this project, not only do we take a hard look at the data, but also look at the consequences that this had on everyday people. Uh, let me just remind our listeners, they're listening to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. My co-host Ahmed Bidir and myself, Samar Jarrah, are talking to Ruwaida Abdelaziz, who is a national reporter covering Islamophobia and immigration. We're talking about the travel ban, the Muslim travel ban. It's became known as the Muslim travel ban and how it affected the lives of thousands of people. It is still affecting the lives of people. Let me play this uh, segment. It's almost uh, three minutes maybe we're not going to play it all but um, when on Monday uh, then uh, like five years ago uh, Trump signed a revised executive order to reinstate a ban on immigration uh, from certain Muslim majority countries and suspend the US refugee program so many people went to the streets and lawyers and they went uh, to uh, airports uh, offering uh, free Wi-Fi so they can connect with the people who were landing still uh, into the US and facing this travel ban. But let's listen to how the administration tried to explain it. The administration officials tried to explain it to the rest of the world. The executive order signed by the president earlier today protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States is a vital measure for strengthening our national security. It is the president's solemn duty to protect the American people. And with this order, President Trump is exercising his rightful authority to keep our people safe. As threats to our security continue to evolve and change, common sense dictates that we continually reevaluate and reassess the systems we rely upon to protect our country. To our allies and partners around the world, Please understand, this order is part of our ongoing efforts to eliminate vulnerabilities that radical Islamist terrorists can and will exploit for destructive ends. 
and the State Department will implement the provisions in this order that allow for the admissions of refugees when it is determined they do not pose a risk to the security or welfare of the United States. First, as President Trump noted in his address to Congress, the majority of people convicted in our courts for terrorism-related offenses since 9-11 came here from abroad. We also know that many people seeking to support or commit terrorist acts will try to enter through our refugee program. In fact, today more than 300 people, according to the FBI, uh, who came here as refugees are under an FBI investigation today for potential terrorism-related activities. Like every nation, the United States has a right to control who enters our country and to keep out those who would do us harm. This executive order seeks to protect the American people as well as lawful immigrants by putting in place an enhanced screening and vetting process for visitors from six countries. This executive order responsibly provides a needed pause we can, so we can carefully review how we scrutinize people coming here from these countries of concern. Second, the Department of Justice believes that this executive order, just as the first executive order, is a lawful and proper exercise of presidential authority. We are going to work closely to implement and enforce it humanely, respectfully, and with professionalism, but we will enforce the law. I want to thank the President for his leadership on this issue and for his steadfast support for our important law enforcement, security, and counterterrorism mission. Again, as previously mentioned, I have spent much of the day today on the phone with members of Congress, the leadership, explaining the ins and outs of this EO, and I did the same thing last week. So there should be no surprises, whether it's in the media or on Capitol Hill. Thanks very much, uh, and thanks for your time. Okay, uh, you were uh, listening uh, to uh, the administration uh, officials uh, outlining the terms of uh, revised uh, travel uh, ban and they connected, uh, of course, uh, to terrorism, the word that uh, scares people. So, uh, Ruwaida, um, I'm not sure if you have any comment uh, on that and my co-host, you can jump in uh, anytime uh, on this uh, conversation. But, uh, Ruwaida, are there like personal stories that you have come close to and you can share with our uh, listeners about people who were directly affected by this travel ban. Absolutely. There are several people that I've spoken to and interviewed over the course of the years. The some of the examples, uh, the most prominent one is uh, Mohammed Saleh, who I feature in this investigation, who I think really, uh, his story is incredibly heartbreaking and goes to show the human impact behind such a policy. You know, he had petitioned for his son, all of his children, his five children, to come to the United States. His one son, Ayman, actually had a heart condition, and so he was hoping that he would be treated here in live with him in New York because that opportunity simply didn't exist in his home country of Yemen where the civil war has destroyed the majority of health facilities. And because he started this process in 2018 when the ban was in effect, 
Ayman's application was stuck in immigration limbo, and eventually his visa was denied because of the ban. And Mohammed here in New York, he begged lawyers and advocates for help. He contacted local politicians and his representatives, but the ban made any type of legal recourse impossible. And him being stuck in that in that immigration limbo, uh, Ayman unfortunately passed away uh, in May 2021, even after the ban was rescinded because he couldn't get the visa on time. And so this is just one of the devastating losses that he had to face. In addition to the family separation, his remaining four children who were still in Yemen living on their own their mother had passed uh, a couple of years prior. He was doing everything he could, an American citizen, to bring his children over uh, from Yemen so that they can be reunited in, in the U.S. And the story outlines the challenges that he had to go through despite the fact that the ban has been rescinded. I think in the what is incredibly important to remember, despite the fact that we have a new president, despite the fact that the ban has been revoked, the Consequences still linger, not only uh, in uh, not only in terms of the the impacts that these individuals are facing, but also from the uh, from the bureaucracy. There's uh, nearly a half a million cases that are backlogged at the State Department, and that number is only increasing. Uh, President Biden has announced that people who have been denied visas could seek a revised decision, but those timelines uh, have only been growing longer and longer. I was just speaking to uh, another individual um, this morning, I just published a, a, another story, who also happened to be from Yemen, also separated from his wife and his children. and he he started that application process in 2016, uh, 2010, excuse me. So 2010, he's been trying to bring his wife over. He's had three children so far, and none of them are able to make it to the U.S. because he's still stuck in this backlog. And so when we're looking at this holistically, uh, again, to really reiterate, the consequences are, are not quantifiable. And it's why it's incredibly important that we have these larger conversations, despite the fact that the policy is quite unquote over and i think you mentioned in the story that uh, there is uh, uh, there are ha no, a half a million cases and of course we have the pandemic uh, and covid which slowed things down so you mentioned that between january 2020 uh, until this moment there are more than 75000 applications pending with the State Department National Visa Center and uh, the number went to 473,000 uh, and I think it also, I'm not sure if it also affected, uh, because COVID affected the embassies of the US all over the world. For instance, in Cairo, if you want to apply for a visa for a medical reason or for travel um, uh, as a tourist, uh, the first appointment is in 2024 so I'm not sure if the COVID uh, so affected um, everything with uh, the State Department and visas, but maybe listeners Rwaida, do not understand that the U.S. has a system of giving uh, um, what they call it lottery visa to people from all over the world. But I think in particular countries who don't get to immigrate to the U.S. Can you uh, talk about that? 
because Absolutely. listeners mm-hmm. might think that everybody who's coming here is a refugee who um, who wants to live off the system but they don't know that every uh, technology we are using like uh, the Apple phone or uh, Twitter or uh, face uh, not Facebook but uh, uh, what else many many things we are using in social media came from immigrants and came from people who came here not to live off the system but to contribute to the uh, country absolutely and it's not just immigrants we're talking about we're also talking about american families american citizens who are being separated from their partners and their children and their grandparents missing out on milestones unable to see the birth of their children or their funerals of loved ones uh immigrants who have been granted the opportunity to come study or work here who had to give up on those opportunities and so when we were discussing the types of people who are being impacted Uh, immigrants or non-immigrants, we're also discussing a huge segment of the American population. So I think it's incredibly important that we keep that in mind. Um, In regards to immigrants, there are several ways in which people are able to immigrate into the U.S. And so those impacted by the ban could be family members who were being petitioned on behalf of American citizens. So, you know, fiancés, spouses, children, etc. Like the case of Muhammad I was mentioning earlier. And those folks have been given uh, by law a some sort of recourse, as I mentioned earlier, the Biden administration told them that uh, they were allowed to seek a revised decision or reapply and were exempted from certain uh, fees with uh, the new applications. But there's also a large group of people who haven't been given recourse. And that's what you mentioned are the folks who won the lottery or also known as the diversity visas, right? Which grants up to 50,000 visas from countries with low representation um, uh, or in the here in the US. So this program was made for people who uh, who normally don't come to the US in, in, in large numbers. And so all of those folks during the Trump administration who have won iDiversity visa over those years, they were told to reapply and that they could not uh, use their visa, they could not seek a visa, even though they wanted to immigrate into the U.S. But advocates and experts have said that the chances of winning the lottery, the chances of winning a diversity visa is extremely rare. And I think we don't recognize that it is almost impossible to to win this twice, let alone to win this once. And that was uh, demonstrated in the story of a young woman named Leila, who won the DV visa. She's from Iran. She's a student and was coming to the United States to continue her academic degree here in the U.S. She had won the diversity visa from Iran, which also historically has very low numbers in May 2017, except after she had packed her bags, she had quit her schooling, she had said goodbye to friends and loved ones, she had her ticket ready, all she needed to do was board that plane with that visa. She was told that she was not allowed to do so because of the travel ban. And her life has been completely upended. She describes to me the emotional distress that she had went through because of the rejection, not just because the rejection came, also because the 
the rejection came so late after they had promised her this dream. She had paid fees here in the U.S. to begin um, English courses and to and to start all over again and have this opportunity to come into the U.S. She describes more than anything she wanted to use her skill set um, as as an engineer and as an academic to contribute to the United States. But she does not have that chance to come to the US anymore because she cannot seek any type of recourse for her for her visa. And so we're discussing tens of thousands of people between 2017 and 2020 who won that lottery but could not physically get the visa in their hands. And so we're, it's a large diverse group of people who try to immigrate to the United States, who've done so lawfully, who've gotten that opportunity taken away from them and are essentially being told there's no way of getting that opportunity back. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking to Rawaida Abdelaziz. She is a Huffington Post journalist that specializes, focuses on immigration and Islamophobia. And we're speaking about the five-year anniversary of the Muslim ban, the travel ban that uh, President Trump had put into place and the consequences um, that still exist for those people that were impacted Uh, the damage done by this Muslim ban. For example, is there efforts to actually reverse it by giving priority or guarantee those that had visas before, not just to reapply again, but actually just to expedite their applications since they were, you know, instead of getting in the back of the line, they get in the front of the line. Yeah, there have been multiple attempts to, to seek recourse before the ban was revoked by President Biden. Uh, House Democrats did pass a bill to repeal the bans, also known as the No, the no Ban Act, which actually uh, has passed. It also added prohibitions on religious discrimination in visa applications as well. Um, and, it, you know, that bill ended up, uh, that version of that bill ended up being passed through uh, Biden's executive order. And now what advocates have been calling for essentially is to find recourse to re now reunite these families. Um, last week, more than 100 civil rights and social justice organizations sent a letter to the Biden administration urging them to do more to relieve the ongoing family separations, to address the delay and to address the backlogs for U.S. visas. Uh, the group detailed about 13 different policy changes that they wanted to see to rectify the impacts of the bans, including, like you mentioned, expediting immigrant and non-immigrant visas. But the backlog, as you know, someone mentioned earlier, is is so great, and and we're not entirely sure as to how that's going to play out. The the White House has repeatedly mentioned that they were looking for ways to creatively come up with solutions to address the backlog, but we're unsure as to what that's going to look like. Um, what are which members of Congress are leading this fight and? Um, how has, I mean, does it, from your uh, perspective, is the Biden administration serious about getting this done or are they just dragging their feet? There are real challenges that the Biden administration has to address. Uh, the pandemic is definitely one of them. Um, the shortages, um, not just at the State Department, but in consular offices across the world, uh, all 
add to the challenges as to perhaps why they are struggling to come up with a solution um, and to implement it uh, sooner than later. And so there are Congress members who have been advocating for for recourse, absolutely. But I think finding the ways to to do so to do so in a way that is efficient without compromising national security uh, perhaps continues to be the biggest challenge. You know, U.S. law regulations require that immigrant visas appear personally uh, before a consular office to sign their application, to verify their application by oath, to provide fingerprints um, and other background checks for security vetting. So doing that at a time where everyone's working remotely uh, has been a challenge in trying to do so to protect the health and the safety of both the officers and the applicants. These are some of the the language that the White House and the State Department has used and said that they were go that they were working around. Um, the State Department spokesperson Ned Price just tweeted next week that last week, excuse me, that they were looking into taking additional steps to rectify um, the the long waits for, for applicants. And so it is definitely on their mind. We can see that they are aware of the issue, but when we're talking to folks who are impacted, uh, they don't seem to be very convinced. They feel like that despite the fact that the White House and the administration and other folks um, in, in Washington, D.C. are aware of the issue that these steps are not being taken quickly enough because people have been waiting years for a solution and they're still suffering. I remember when the uh, Trump actually signed the executive order in 2016, shortly after taking office and banning uh, Muslims from these different countries. There was, you know, huge demonstrations at airports. There are so many people from the broader society going and protesting Trump and standing in solidarity with Muslims against this Muslim ban. For the first time in history, you see all these uh, activists and um, you know people of all colors, especially white people, are going to the uh, airports and fighting for Muslims' rights. Um, was that more because they cared about the issue or was it just because Trump uh, was, you know, they're against Trump or were they motivated more because they want to be against Trump, or was it because they actually cared about the issue? And where are those people now? Are they still is that still a top concern for the average Democrat or or, or activist or in these lawyers that were out there at the airports? That's a great question. I mean, the move prompted immediate outrage, like you mentioned. I think. You know, we saw for for a little bit a moment of hope and clarity when we saw the thousands of people joining the protests at these airports and in these big cities and small cities. And I would like to believe that people were genuinely outraged that this policy was able to take effect and how it was impacting people, and not just this one policy. But we saw this when it the ban was expanded when it was being challenged in the courts. And so holding on to that momentum, I think is incredibly important, not just while Trump was president, I think even now, despite whether we have a Republican or a Democratic president, uh, policies are policies and accountability is still incredibly important uh, regardless, because at the end of the day, measuring the human toll of these legislations and of these laws, I think supersedes who are the ones passing them. Um, one other thing that I remember hearing 
And by the way, if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF with Summer and Ahmed. We're speaking to Rawaid Abdelaziz. She's a reporter with the Huffington Post. And we're, we're speaking about the five-year anniversary of the uh, Muslim ban that Trump had enacted. Um, I remember uh, people telling me um, that even the countries, Muslim countries that were not on the travel ban, um, when people went for interviews or, you know, to embassy appointments or even sometimes uh, to enter the United States, there were new questionnaires that were being asked, uh, questions that, you know, for vetting or screening, like what they call extreme vetting or something like that. And some of these questions, a lot of it had to do with religion, how often they prayed, uh, how religious they are, are they, you know, involved in any groups, questions that they didn't ask other people of faith. I don't know if you came across that or not, um, and if you have any comments uh, on that, on the extreme vetting that Trump was doing, not just to the Muslim-majority countries or the countries impacted by the travel ban, but also other Muslim countries that were not part of the travel ban. Travel ban is just one example, perhaps the most recent, as to how we've seen Islamophobia being codified into law, and particularly immigration law. As you've mentioned, before the travel ban was implemented, Muslims, right, we know the 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 hashtag or what we commonly refer to as flying while Muslim uh, and what that experience is like, uh, whether you're an American citizen or not, uh, receiving the mysterious four S's on a ticket, being questioned and profiled at airports, uh, that phenomenon is something that predates the ban and continues to happen post the ban. Uh, we have issues where uh, folks who are applying for visas uh, from Muslim majority countries tend to just face higher levels of scrutiny because of the countries in which they come from compared to perhaps someone who was coming from a European country before and after the travel ban as well. So I think the larger takeaway here is how religious discrimination, anti-Muslim bigotry has been codified into laws over and over again, despite uh, the administrations and the presidents who have come and gone. And I don't know if that's going to go away anytime soon, you know, speaking to advocates and lawyers and activists, uh, they're not particularly optimistic about it, but that is why they continue to fight and, and do the work that they do. It is why it's incredibly important from a journalistic perspective that we continue to press on these issues because when you have a systematic, uh, when you have a system that continues to incorporate, you know, bias and prejudice, and in this case, uh, anti-Muslim bigotry and Islamophobia and religious discrimination, it's just going to pop up in different forms, whether we're discussing NCRs, whether we're discussing uh, racial profiling while uh, flying or the travel ban. And the end goal here is to make sure that the, these policies are functioning in the way that they're supposed to function and they're not targeting a marginalized group of people. Again, um it seems, and I wanted to ask you, Orwayda, that you've been covering Islamophobia for some time now. Um, it, it seems, you know, over 20 years now, uh, after the tragic events of 9-11, many of the policies that were rooted in Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bigotry or discrimination, policies that even by maybe sometimes well-intended politicians actually went too far to single out Muslims or have some sort of bias in them in the name of security, 
it seems now that this type of um, Islamophobia is institutionalized. When I say Islamophobia, it's a type of racism against a specific group or a class, uh, either Muslims, people who are perceived to be Muslims, or people from Muslim majority, you know, national origin countries. It, it just seems like, whether it's on the right or left, that it's this type of racism or this bias or this uh, concern of the Muslim American community or Islam as a religion is still with us and continues more today than than it than before. Uh, even in the immediate days after nine eleven, it just seems like it's now institutionalized. You feel the same way, or um, you know, what is your gauge on? The trajectory of Islamophobia is it getting better? Are things getting worse? Where are we? That's a great question, and I don't know if I have a simple response as to where we are in regards to Islamophobia as a whole. I think one thing that I've seen over and over again is that it takes different forms. Uh, you know, there have been studies that have quoted that anti-Muslim sentiment uh, immediately after 9/11. Uh, was perhaps one of the most challenging time for Muslim Americans. We've seen those numbers rise again during the Trump administration as well. Regardless, I think we are still dealing with the same challenges, especially when we're looking at what you mentioned, right? Institutionalized Islamophobia, issues like uh, surveillance and informancy, issues like traveling, issues like civil rights and, and, and religious discrimination. And so when we're discussing the impact uh, of a lot of those policies, I think it's clear to say that we're still recovering from a lot of those impacts and that this really broke in the fabric of trust within the Muslim community. I mean, not that long ago, just a couple months ago, back in November, the Supreme Court heard a case on the FBI's uh, surveillance of Muslims, particularly after three Muslim men filed a class action lawsuit uh, alleging that an FBI, the FBI paid an informant to surveil them solely based off of their religious Muslim identity. And so that was just most recently being heard despite the fact that the case itself happened uh, several years ago, back in 2011, 12, approximately, when we're discussing, again, the travel ban. Today's the five-year anniversary. Ban is gone, still facing those impacts. When we're discussing issues of informancy, again, what happened in New York with the NYPD um, and the local Muslim community here. So when we're discussing anti-Muslim hate, um, there is still so much that we need to talk about. I mean, there was a survey that also came out uh, not too long ago in October 2021 that said over two-thirds of Muslim Americans, they have been cited that they faced some sort of Islamophobia at least once in their life, right? And this was a, a survey that was put together by the University of uh, California, the other belonging institute. And the findings not only just quantify the prevalence of Islamophobia, but just how much it exists. I think it's a something around 98% um, of people surveyed said that they've experienced some sort of Islamophobia and that Muslim women in particular, those who were the hijab, were more likely to have experienced some sort of Islamophobia in their lifetime than men. And so when we're discussing anti-Muslim sentiment, I think there's just so much to capture here. We're talking about the impacts of policies from the government and states, state-sanctioned Islamophobia, but we're also talking about 
the experience of children in school, adults in the workplace, right? Uh, the bullying and the targeting of Muslims on social media. And it's not just an American problem. It's it's a global problem, right? We're not even beginning to scratch the surface of perhaps what's happening in countries like India. We saw what happened in Canada, right, with the Quebec mosque shooting. We saw what happened in New Zealand. Uh, and it's one of the reasons as to why Representative Ilhan Omar created the special envoy to combat anti-Muslim hate. And so when we're discussing it, I think it's incredibly important that we talk about it in its full picture because in order to end in order to tackle anti-muslim hate and bias across the world i don't think we've even begun to understand just how common it is both on an everyday experience and through uh, laws and policies globally if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. My co-host Ahmed Bedir and myself are talking with journalist Ruwaida Abdelaziz who writes uh, for the Huffington Post and other uh, organizations. She's a national reporter covering Islamophobia and immigration and we are discussing the five years anniversary of the Muslim ban. She wrote on the Huffington Post, you can go there and read a very, very extensive um, study of, of maybe it uh, lasted a whole year of people who were actually affected by this uh, travel ban it's the title the title is Trump's travel ban forever changed the lives of Muslims around the world and I want to mention Ruwaida that as I was researching uh, the topic in order to talk to you found that there is a website it's www.no muslimbanever.com no muslimbanever.com and it's an action call for action it's to sign a letter to be sent to the Biden administration and I briefly can say it says uh, dear Mr. President uh, we mark one year of your administration the undersigned 108 immigrants rights civil rights and civil liberties and community based organizations committed to protecting the rights of Muslims African, Arab, Iranian, Middle Eastern and South Asian communities right to urge you to provide relief to those who have been impacted by Trump's uh, Muslim ban. I'm not sure, uh, are you familiar uh, with uh, this uh, action and uh, uh, it's called No Muslim Ban Ever, Rwaida? Uh, yeah, the No Muslim Ban campaign, I am familiar. It is... Uh Rwaida? I think I lost you. Ruwaida, are you still there? I'm not sure what happened, but uh, I'm trying to get uh, Ruwaida back uh, on the show. I can't hear her. And we are just... So I know it's yeah. a coalition. Sorry, Ruwaida, but uh, for some reason you were... Um, okay, the, uh, intercon the connection here was lost. So please uh, tell us a little bit about the no Muslim uh, ban ever. Absolutely. Sorry about that. No, um, it's not your problem. I think something happened here in the studio. I'm sorry. It's like, oh, worries. It's the, uh, we're Technology. all working remotely. We have to always yes. be reminded of the old ways that were... <laughs> more stable, I would say. Yes, we're Go. all getting more creative as we're we're working remote. Work, remote work is becoming more yeah. common. Yes, the most the No Muslim Ban Ever campaign um, is a number of organizations and grassroots groups 
who've come together really with one goal, uh, and that is to lobby against the end of the Muslim ban. They were created when the travel ban uh, first was enacted, and they continue to uh, work and to organize and to advocate for those impacted by the ban. And most recently, uh, they published that letter that you just read and that you've mentioned. Um, they've also sent the, the Biden administration uh, policy recommendations from their perspective as to how they want to see change and relief provided to those impacted. And so they are just one of the many grassroots organizations that have been working to advocate not just against the ban, but also expand different forms of relief um, and and advocating for those who have, are continuing to face the consequences of the travel ban. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF with Ahmed and Summer. We're speaking to Rawaida Abdelaziz about the five-year anniversary of the Muslim ban, which was a executive order put into a law by President Trump banning Muslims from some Muslim-majority countries, um, but we're also speaking about Islamophobia, and I wanted to get back to this issue of Islamophobia and where we're sta- where we're at it, you know, today, the state of affairs. Uh, you know, this Islamophobia that's happening not only in America but also around the world is not happening in a vacuum. In order for it's not just based on government policies, but it's also uh, by it's flamed by certain media outlets and the media in general. Um, what uh, you know, especially like, you know, conservative or, or right-wing media. You mentioned somebody like the New Zealand sh- um, mass shooting of that terrorist attack, uh, even attacks that happened in Europe against Muslims. Oftentimes they mention the things that they hear on the media or media pundits here in the United States that espouse certain views. Um, in your investigation, what has been the role of these media outlets in flaming fanning the flames of Islamophobia, and has the mainstream media done enough? Do other journalists, in your opinion, get it? Um, how important it is to counter Islamophobia in their writings or to cover it, um, as they do with anti-Semitism, for example, which, uh, of course, should also be combated, but is it seen in the same way as anti-black racism? Is it seen the same way as anti-Semitism? And do media outlets and journalists like yourself, others, uh, you know, are they focusing enough on countering this Islamophobia narrative. One of the biggest challenges of Islamophobia, like you mentioned, is the perception of Islam and Muslims. You know, a Pew Research study uh, cited that those who didn't know a Muslim personally were more likely to have an unfavorable view of Muslims and Islam. And they also were more likely to get their information perhaps from not the most accurate sources, including media outlets that uh, were not objective and, and skewed uh, more, uh, how do I say this politely, on the conspiracy sides, right? But those who did know a Muslim personally tend to have a much more favorable view of Islam and Muslims. And I cite that study, uh, despite it being a few years old, mostly because it talks about, demonstrates the impact as to how news consumption can impact a person's perception of a particular group of people. And we've seen that uh, across not just faith groups, but people of other uh, minority backgrounds. 
Unfortunately, I think coverage of Muslim Americans in Islam continues to be one dimensional. You don't have to be a journalist to know that. I think many people do, particularly those of the Muslim American population. It's solely being tied to issues of terrorism and national security. And we're not discussing the wider Muslim American population and region and our day-to-day coverage. Uh, there have been several studies that mention that each time Muslims and Islam have come up in media, uh, they're only being tied to to these very political issues. So the, the politicization of the Muslim identity continues to be a problem and I think continues to inflame the misinformation and disinformation that we see on the right that we've seen really skyrocketed over the last few years that continue to be the source, like you mentioned, of mass shooters, of white supremacists, of people who are burning down the masjid, of people who are committing these hate crimes. So it's incredibly important that I'm not advocating that we're having so-called quote unquote positive stories about Islam and Muslims, but objective stories, stories that talk about the challenges that the Muslim American community faces in addition to their accomplishments, talking to them like they're like they're not, uh, the Muslim American community is not a monolith, excuse me, and covering them as so. When we look at the statistics, Muslim Americans don't have a majority race, and yet there's still this association when we talk about Muslims that they're either from Arab or South Asian descent, right? Ignoring completely that the fact that the first Muslim population here in the US are black Muslims, that the largest and fastest growing Muslim American population are the Latino Muslim community. And so acknowledging that diversity, not just racially, but also from the socioeconomic status that we're talking about Muslim issues, not just in regards to civil rights and politics, but when we're discussing the pandemic, when we're discussing healthcare workers, when we're discussing issues about education and criminal justice and policing, we don't see that type of holistic coverage in mainstream media. And that is absolutely contributing to the problem of perpetuating anti-Muslim sentiment from the ground up. This is why we should have you all the time on WMNF and we're so grateful that you are out there uh, doing these features. Rwaida Abdelaziz, thank you so much for being on True Talk. She's the national reporter of the Huffington Post covering Islamophobia and immigration. Thank you so much Rwaida for being on True Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. And uh, we need to remind our listeners that uh, uh, in a couple of uh, weeks, we're going to be fundraising. I think February 17, we're going to be raising so many uh, dollars for WMNF that brings the voices of Ruwaida Abdelaziz and uh, myself and Ahmed uh, on there. Thank you for supporting WMNF. Thank you for uh, supporting uh, True Talk. And this is WMNF Temp. And NPR News should be uh, starting any minute now. And thank you so much, Jessica, for helping me produce the show. This is True Talk on WMNF, WMNF Tampa. Live.